out of the mouths of babes. You can't make that up. Uh, this time we'll go ahead and dismiss those babes to Children's Church, uh, Mario and Kimberly. Kimberly is back. Praise Jesus. <laughs> uh, we are so grateful to have such a wonderful team uh, uh, leading our kids' church so they can be dismissed at this time. You know, Isaiah says, Isaiah says, though our sin be as scarlet, he will make it as white as snow. You know, being in South Louisiana, we oftentimes don't appreciate how white snow is because we see it about once every seven years or so. Uh, but what, what the scripture is saying is that which is, is marred and that which is black and that which is uh, putrid, that the blood of Christ makes as pure and as white and as holy as the God who created this universe. What a wonderful truth. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25. Is it too late? Is it too late? That's the question that we will be addressing this morning in Matthew, chapter 25. We've been dealing with the last few weeks, we've been dealing with the coming of Christ, uh, we've been dealing with uh, the signs of the end, and we spent a good bit of time talking about everything that all of these, the subculture in Christianity that says the prophecy is coming and the end of the time is here, and, and, and all this points to this and this points to that, and whenever this leader becomes president and this leader steps into the role of authority that that's going to usher in the antichrist and the end times and i cautioned you and reminded you that the end is not the end that jesus said this is only the beginning of the end and then we come to this passage at the end of matthew chapter 24 that we looked at last week when jesus was really talking about the end times and the coming of christ the second coming of christ and so we come to this parable in Matthew chapter 25, and we beg the question, is it too late? Is it too late for you? Is it too late for I? Uh, there are many of us who have family members, who have friends who don't know Christ. There are many of us who have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who have siblings, who have friends, who have co-workers, who have loved ones who don't know Christ. And the cruel reality is, is if they die and leave this world, or if Christ comes back, before they have made a public, before they have decided to follow Jesus, that it'll be too late. And so this parable this morning in Matthew chapter 25 deals with just that. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But when the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps, now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father, may we heed this message. May we indeed be prepared. May we be diligent to make ready our souls for the day of the Lord. Lord, if there are those here this morning who are not ready to meet Jesus, may today they not leave this place without being ready. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me back up for just a moment and remind us what Jesus says at the end of this passage. He's also said in Matthew chapter 24, no one knows the time or the hour. If anyone, if any denomination, if any preacher, if any prophet, if anyone claims that they know, then you look at them and you say, Jesus says, no one knows, so you're a liar. No one knows. No one knows. It doesn't matter what, what revelation they have. It doesn't matter if they have calculated uh, uh, based upon the stars and based upon this world event and that world event, how it lines up with the book of Daniel and lines up with the book of Revelation and lines up with the book of Ezekiel and they've calculated it and they've, 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 they've put together a map and it's so convincing. If they tell you that they know, then they're lying. And if they tell you that they know, then you can mark one thing down for sure, that Jesus isn't coming back that day. No one knows. He ends the passage, be on alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. I pray that whenever you leave this place today, that you will be ready for the coming of Christ. I want to back up and I want to talk to you just a little bit about the custom of that day, about the wedding feast. And, and you're, you're reading this and, and you're probably like me and you're like, what's the deal with these ten virgins and why are they waiting on the bridegroom? None of this makes any sense to me. The ways that they did weddings in the first century and uh, Judaism about at, at that time was completely different than the way we do weddings today. There was not uh, a wedding day followed by immediately by a reception and then the bride and groom left to go on their honeymoon and then they came back to begin their life together as husband and wife. That is not the way that they did marriages in the first century. First of all, a marriage was, was a, a huge deal because the man would assume the responsibility and the liability of the woman. Remember, in those days, there was no such thing as a two-income household. There was no such thing as a career woman. There was no such thing as, as, well, I'll get a job and she'll get a job and we'll both contribute to the income of the family. Women did not work. The only profession that a woman could, could do in those days was prostitution. And if you were a prostitute, chances are you weren't married. And so the idea was that the man would assume this woman that she would become his wife and that he would take on the full responsibility of caring for her and the children that would come from that relationship. 
This meant this is the purpose and this is the reason for a dowry. Because the husband was taking on the woman, the father would compensate him for taking her off of his payroll. And all the dads in here say, well, yeah, you know, if I can get the woman, if I can get my daughter off of payroll, then I will, I will gladly pay exorbitant amounts of money just to get them off of my payroll. Because paying over the course of 18, 20, 25 years is expensive. And, and so this, this was the, the culture in that day. And so what would often happen is while all of the legal arrangements were being made, while the dowry was being paid, while, while the, the husband was making preparations for the wife, they would have the legal nuptials done. And then the bridegroom, the husband, would go and make final preparations. He would go and he would, he would prepare his house. Uh, he may have to sell some property uh, in order to have the finances to support his wife. He may have to make final preparations. And so there was oftentimes a lag between the legal nuptials and the time that they actually became husband and wife and lived together as a married couple. And so this is that interim period of time that Jesus is addressing. The legal nuptials have already been exchanged. They've already exchanged vows. They're already husband and wife. And the bridal party is now waiting for the bridegroom to come back from making these final preparations so that they can gather together and have what we would call the reception. Have this marriage feast, this party, which would oftentimes last for weeks. And so the bridal party is what is made up by these ten virgins. The word in the New Testament literally means virgin, but it is given to us to communicate that these were young women of marriable age. It has less to do with their sexual purity and much more to do with with their age, that they were probably close friends of the bride and or the bridegroom, and they were young of marriable age. These ten virgins were the bridesmaids. They were the, uh, the, the maids of honor. These were the women who were closely associated with the bride and the bridegroom. This was the bridal party. And so what was happening in this parable is you had the bridegroom. They had married. The bridegroom had left to go make preparations. And he was coming back. And the bridal party was to be ready. For when the bridegroom came, that was going to initiate the feast. That was going to initiate the reception. And it became the custom that the bridegroom would try to come at an hour when the bridal party wasn't expected because he wanted to see if he could catch them off guard. So he would often come in the middle of the night or he would come early in the morning when he knew they would be sleeping in an effort to catch them off guard. And so this is exactly what we see here in this passage. Now, I want us to understand that as we look at this interim period between Christ coming initially, we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. I know it's hard for you to wrap your brains around that. Uh, We're going to be celebrating Christmas in just a few weeks. We're going to celebrate the initial coming of the Messiah. And there is an interim period where the Messiah leaves, and as he tells his disciples in in John chapter 14, he said, I am going, and where I'm going, you cannot come, because I go to prepare a place for you. Sounds familiar to to the marriage preparation. 
I am going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. Jesus has left. He ascended into heaven to prepare a place for us. And he's coming back. The bridegroom is coming back to get us. And so this interim period is the period that we're talking about. And for many of us, and for many of us who have gone, who've, many believers who have gone on before us, this, this time period, this interim time, it seems to be a long, long time. Paul wrote as if the second coming of Jesus was imminent. I believe that Paul believed that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. And then something happened in Paul's life. He died. And Jesus didn't come back. And then there was another generation. There was the generation of Timothy and Titus, those disciples of Paul, who lived and pastored and taught Apollos and these other, these other great men, Polycarp, the disciple of John, that... that generation following the apostles and they died without seeing the coming of jesus and then you had men like tertullian and ignatius and irenaeus and origin and justin martyr and these men these patriarchal fathers these early fathers of the early church and they died and jesus had not come back and then you have men like augustine and clement of alexandria and these fathers of the faith and they died and Jesus didn't come back. And you have generation after generation after generation of faithful men who believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And they believed that the, the coming of Christ was imminent. And church, I believe that the coming of Christ is imminent. Just like Paul. And just like Polycarp. And just like Origen and and. Augustine, and John Huss, and John Wycliffe, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, Billy Graham. I believe that Jesus is coming any day. And His coming is imminent. But, I want us to understand, the God that we serve exists outside of time. God created time, and to Him, our understanding of time and our understanding of slowness and our understanding of why is it taking Him so long that God exists outside of time. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He's very careful, he's very careful to qualify that God is not slow about keeping his promise. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. It says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved Christians, believers. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, that the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Verse 9. And the Lord is not slow about keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, is long-suffering toward you. Not, with, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to eternal life. If you look at Psalm verse 90, David says it a little bit differently, but he says the same thing in Psalm chapter 90. He says this. He says, For a, a thousand years in thy sight 
are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this passage and, and begin to start doing calculations and start trying to apply a formula because Jesus said no one knows the day. And so it is not about Jesus, it's not about Peter being literal saying to God one day equals a thousand years or a thousand years is equal to one day. And that's not what David is saying either. What they're trying to convey is that God's idea of time and our idea of time are completely different because God exists outside of time and space. God created before there was time and space. God was before there was time and space. God exists outside of time, and God is not bound by time. And so we must understand that whenever God says, I am coming and I am coming quickly, that He is coming and He is coming quick, quickly, and our understanding of time is much different than His. God exists outside of time. And so we must be careful not to project onto him our understanding of time. Secondly, I want to remind us that preparedness is characterized by our affection and our work. That's what we looked at last week. There is a caution in Matthew chapter 25, a warning of his disciples to count the cost before you follow. This morning, Cole made a step of faith by being baptized. I pray that Cole has counted the cost. That he has understood that following Jesus, that becoming a Christian is not, it's not like getting fire insurance. Just in case something goes wrong. But that following Jesus is a life of obedience that comes with hardships, with trial, with difficulty, with persecution. Paul told Timothy, he said, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. That is the message to these, to these virgins in Matthew chapter 25. There is a necessity to prepare, to understand that the night is long, that the darkness is long, that it is enduring, that, that at the moment when you think you've, you've prepared enough, and the moment that, that, that you think... I'll be able to stay awake. I'll be able to endure. I will be able to weather this darkness. The darkness is long. The difficulty is long. Those lonely nights oftentimes last for an eternity. There is a cautiousness, a cautious warning to the disciples to count the cost. Following Jesus is a difficult journey. I want us to notice two things about Jesus' instructions to the, to the virgins here in Matthew chapter 25. First of all, I want us to notice that whenever they woke up and the bridegroom was coming, there were two groups. There was one group that had brought extra oil and there was one group that had not brought extra oil. And if this were, if I was considering this, this, uh, this parable, I would be in the group that didn't bring enough oil. My wife would have brought enough oil for everyone in the church, plus some, and I would have immediately come to my wife and said, hey, let me have some oil because I didn't bring enough. And, and she would say, just like, she would say, just like these other virgins, I'm not giving you any, this is for me and my kids, and you're on your own, buddy. But this is the group. And notice that there is no sharing of oil. 
that these groups of bridesmaids, the, the, the first five had enough oil, the second five did not have enough oil, and whenever the bridegroom comes, there was no sharing of oil. What Jesus is saying here in this passage is that your preparedness is your preparedness. You being ready to meet the, the king, you being ready to meet the bridegroom is your business. We cannot meet Jesus on grandma's faith. Your husband's faith, your wife's faith, your mom's faith, your grandma's faith is not your faith. I want us to notice two passages of scripture. In Joshua chapter 24, Jesus, I'm sorry, Joshua calls the people of Israel. He says, choose for you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua doesn't say, Joshua doesn't say, all of Israel, let us come together, let's have a vote and figure out who, we'll, who we're going to serve as a nation because if we, as a nation, decide to serve the right God, then maybe God will have favor on us. Notice Joshua's commission. He says, Israel, you, choose you for this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And notice Jesus' question to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. The first question Jesus asked Matthew, he, I'm sorry, he asked Peter, he says, Who do men say that I am? Peter responded, They say, Son of, some say you are John the Baptist, some say you are Elijah, some say you are one of the prophets. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, asks Peter this question Who do you say that I am? Do you see the difference? It doesn't matter what your mom believes. It doesn't matter what your dad believes. It doesn't matter what grandma or grandpa believes. It doesn't matter what your husband or wife or your children believe. What matters is, in, in, according to your eternal destination, what will determine your eternal destination is what you believe. What will you do with Jesus? There's no sharing oil. You cannot get into heaven. You cannot receive eternal life based upon someone else's faith. Secondly, there is a perceived intimacy and a professed intimacy that is not real intimacy. Typically speaking, the wedding party is the best friends of the bridal, of the bridal party. The bride and groom, they choose bridesmaids, they choose groomsmen, and they're the best friends. It blows my mind today. I, I, I have the, the privilege of doing lots of weddings. Uh, it's, it's kind of slowed down now that all my friends are getting old like me. But, but for the past 10, 15 years, I have done three, four weddings a year at least. And it's, it's becoming the trend that, that these bridal parties are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It used to be, uh, you know, you'd have three or four groomsmen and three or four bridesmaids. Now it's not uncommon to have 10, 12 bridesmaids and groomsmen. And it blows my mind. I'm like, I don't even like 10 people that much. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if I'm around most of my friends for more than a couple hours, I'm like, okay, uh, I, I love you. I appreciate you being here. But don't you need to go home or something? Because I, I just don't like being around you that much. 
and, and these, these, these people have, they have all these, these bridesmaids and all these groomsmen and they're best friends and, and they go on these, these, these weekends together and, and I, I just don't get it. But <laughs> I, 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 I guess that, that, that shows my age right there. But I want us to understand that these 10 bridesmaids that are gathered here are perceived to be the best friends of the bride. And when the bridegroom shows back up and the door is closed and the five brides, the five bridesmaids who come and knock on the door, the bridegroom himself comes out and he opens the door and he doesn't say, oh, hey guys, where have you been? We've, we've been waiting for you. What does he say? Look at the text. Look at the text. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 12. Look at the text. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The bridegroom opened the door. He looked at these bridesmaids. And he said, I don't know who you are. You can't come into the wedding party. You can't participate in the feast. You can't participate in the celebration. This is eerily familiar to Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, whenever Jesus was giving his, his final charge at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, there will be many who say, but Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done all these mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, ye cursed, for I never knew you. What is the warning? The warning is this. When the appointed time comes, it doesn't matter how pretty you're dressed. It doesn't matter your exterior righteousness. You can have on the bridesmaid outfit. You can have on the tuxedo. You can be all ready on the outside to go to the wedding. You can have have called yourself the best friend of the groom. You could have, have professed this, this intimate relationship with the bride or the groom. But if there is not a genuine relationship with the Lord, the door will be closed and He will say, I don't know you. It is not an exterior appearance. It is not a superficial facade that will guarantee eternal life. The only thing that will guarantee eternal life is an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. Acts chapter 4 says, There is given, under, there is given one name under heaven by which men must be saved, and that is the name Jesus. When the appointed time to come, and it's coming, it will be too late. My dad passed away at 56 years old. I asked him after he had gotten sick. I said, Dad, you smoked for 40 years. Did you not think you were going to get cancer? Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you quit when... Daniel was born and he said, he said, Papa, why are you smoking in the sick bay? And he looked at me and he said, you know, Preston, 
He said, I always knew I'd get cancer. But I thought I'd be like 75. And by then, I would have lived my life. I would have enjoyed everything that I wanted to enjoy. And I'd be ready. But his appointment came at 56 years old. My dad was about 15 months away from retirement. He had been saving his entire life, putting money in his 401k, putting money in his credit union, saving and saving and saving. He wanted to buy some property. He wanted to build a hunting camp. He wanted to travel. We had made plans. He and I were going to go to New Zealand. We were going to hunt stag in New Zealand. We were going to go to Alaska. He and I had made plans to travel the Midwest and go turkey hunting. At 56 years old, my dad went home to be with the Lord. And there's something that the Lord taught me through that experience. That appointed time is going to come way before you're ready. Whether it is spending time with your family, whether it is spending and developing your relationship with your wife, your husband, don't put it off till tomorrow. Jesus' message in Matthew chapter 25, the appointed time for you to meet your maker is coming. And when it comes, you must be ready. Don't delay your preparation because the appointed time may be today. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us this. It is appointed for a man to die once and face the judgment. We will meet Jesus. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God sooner or later. There's an appointed time for a man to die. And after that, the judgment. The truth of the scripture is very, plain, is very plain and very clear. Jesus is Lord. There is no other. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, For this reason God gave him the name that is above every name, the name that, is, uh, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess, both in heaven and earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There is one King, there is one Lord, and His name is Jesus. And every day, one day, every person is going to recognize the reality of the Lordship of Jesus. The difference is, will you submit to Jesus now? Will you bow to Him now in submission? Or, Will you bow to him later in recognition? There's an appointed time 
for all of us. The message of Matthew chapter 25, I believe, is to warn those disciples, be prepared. And that same message applies to us today. The reality of the gospel is this, is that all of us, all of us, whether we are 96 or whether we're six weeks old, we are in need of a Savior. Because the scripture tells us very plain and very clear that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we see the abundance of little children that are, that are coming into our church, as you go in the nursery and you see uh, uh, there are little ones everywhere, the reality is that each and every one of these little children are born into this world sinners. And you ask mom and dad, as soon as they're old enough, they're going to begin to defy, they're going to begin to rebel, they're going to begin to disobey. Why? Because by nature we are sinners. We lie, we cheat, we steal. Not, that's not what makes us sinners. We do that because we are sinners. The reality is that the wages of sin is death. That God said, because I am holy and I am righteous, I cannot allow sin, I cannot allow disobedience to enter into a holy place of heaven. And so God must punish sin because He is righteous and because He is holy, because He is a just judge, because He is a righteous judge, He must punish sin. But the great news of the gospel is that God did not like the reality that his creation was full of sin and was not going to be able to spend eternity in a glorious heaven apart from him. And so God himself came down to heaven, came from heaven, left heaven and came down to earth and put on flesh. And John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And we beheld his glory. God became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And when God became flesh, He lived a perfect life, completely fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And He said in Matthew chapter 5, He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through Me. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled every aspect of the law and hung on a Roman cross. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this, that God looked upon Him who had no sin, and placed our sin upon Him, that we might become the very righteousness of Christ. And God transferred our sin and placed it upon Christ, and transferred His righteousness and placed it upon us, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything, not, not because of, of any prayer that we've prayed, not because we got wet in a baptistry, not because we walked down an aisle, but because we turned from our sin and we placed our faith and trust in what Jesus has done. And the truth of the gospel is the only way we can be ready is to trust in what Jesus has done. And there are some of you here who believe that because you have an exterior righteousness or because you have a church membership or because you do certain things, because you profess to know the bridegroom, because you look like you know the bridegroom, that whenever you come to that day that you're going to knock on that door and he's going to say, come on in, we've been waiting for you. But the reality is, is he's going to say, I don't know you. And it grieves my heart to know that there are some of us that are sitting here who think they know Jesus, who think that they're dressed right, 
who think that they've, they've, they've made all of these preparations and they're going to get to the door and it's not going to be open because He doesn't know you. Search your heart this morning. The Scripture says test yourselves to see that you be in the faith. The Scripture says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you're there this morning and you're not sure if you're ready, don't leave this place today without trusting in Jesus and Him alone. Let's pray. God, we thank You that it's not too late. We thank You that You have tarried Your coming. That You have given us, Your church, an opportunity to know salvation. And it's fully by grace. It's nothing that we can earn or deserve. But by Your grace, You sent us Jesus. If you're here this morning and you need to be ready, you're not sure if you're ready. You're not sure that if you died today and stood before God, that He would say, Come on in. Or He would say, I don't know. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Maybe this morning you know that you're a child of God but you need to follow the Lord in obedience by being baptized. I'll invite you to come. Maybe this morning God is calling you and your family to be a part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. During this invitation time, I'll invite you to come. Whatever it is the Lord is speaking to your heart, may today be the day of decision. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to move in this place. In Jesus' name. That's us.